One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Austerity restarts with £50 million of cuts to London culture. World leaders talk climate change while sustainable rail transport falters at home. Essex's newest new town shows one way to meet London's housing need. And is built environment heritage becoming all too political? My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Alpa Dapani. Alpa is an architect and head of strategic planning and design at the London Borough of Waltham Forest. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Morning. A raft of major London museums and arts organisations will see their Arts Council England funding cut next year after the body which supports creativity across the country was told by government to give more money to the suburbs and other towns and cities. Amounting to £50 million worth of government cuts to London's arts funding, this story was covered by Art Newspaper, which ran a quote from London Mayor Sadiq Khan saying, Many of our world-leading cultural organisations will be left devastated by this announcement. Tweeting about the news, Priya Kanchandani, head of curatorial at the Design Museum, said... Camden Arts Centre will lose £319,000 a year, the Crafts Council £280,000 a year, and the ICA £184,000 a year, and the Serpentine Galleries £485,000 a year. She added, billionaires get richer, and yet this. The union Bechtu also issued a statement saying there are real damaging consequences to these cuts. London-based venues that already stretch will suffer in pursuit of a phony levelling up agenda that in reality is merely shifting neglect from one area to another. Potentially even more damaging than cuts to large asset-owning institutions will be the impact on the many smaller organisations who invested tens of thousands of pounds of their reserves in applications to the Arts Council and that were rejected as the Rishi Sunak-led government announced plans to cut £60 billion across public investment. AJ has reported on the anticipated upcoming cuts to capital spending likely to be rolled out by the government later this month as it attempts to mop up the economic fallout from the mini-budget crisis. Rishi Sunak has reportedly reversed his predecessor's decision to build Northern Powerhouse Rail as originally envisaged, with a new high-speed link from Manchester to Leeds, including a station in Bradford. Instead, the new Prime Minister said the government would only support pared-back versions of the plans for rail improvement in the north of England uh, that were previously supported by Johnson. This has been reported by the Financial Times. 
The new Prime Minister has also placed plans for the £20 to £30 billion Sizewell C nuclear reactor under review. The BBC has reported that the project could be delayed or even axed in a bid to cut public spending, despite having been previously re- um, received backing from Truss's government. More information on the level of government support for the infrastructure projects is expected on the 17th of November when Sunak and Chancellor of the Exchequer Jeremy Hunt unveil their plans for tax and spending in an autumn statement. So, Albert, what's this all about? Open City um, is one organisation that put a lot of resources uh, into supporting some of these cultural organisations, such as Create London, the National Youth Theatre, uh, who've also used Open House Festival to attract larger audiences. Uh, what will be the impact of these cuts on London's cultural scene? Yeah, what will be the impact? I mean, we know, or we can at least guess from those figures, that the impact will be huge. Um, there's this kind of relentless idea that, to paraphrase the mayor, that you can level up the country by levelling London down, and it's just a false dichotomy. Um, the idea that you have to choose between London and elsewhere, you know, ignoring the fact that wealth generated in the capital flows to other regions. And, you know, this is coming at the worst time for these institutions. They're recovering from COVID, they've got increasing energy costs, also the cost of living which means people generally are perhaps not spending their money on the arts in the way that they might have previously you know and it's a really reductive suggestion that these institutions because they're in London don't speak for places outside of London you know they may be outside of London but but they generate pride throughout um, the country so it's just a really reductive and false dichotomy. And just focusing in on on that quote from Priya, because obviously that Camden Arts Centre, that's losing £320,000. Okay, Serpentine Galleries, £485,000. These are places that often host free exhibitions. They often provide a place where you can go either in your locality or in the centre of London. Um, Could this potentially mean less culture, less free culture, less opportunities for young people to sort of broaden their minds and opportunities and to sort of connect with built environment, heritage and culture? Yeah, I think that's definitely the danger. They've done a lot to provide free arts and culture, but also a lot of outreach. I mean, a lot of these institutions do a lot in terms of working with young people or um, school leavers and so on, children. And again, it's that false dichotomy that the arts or culture are sort of an add-on, that they don't matter, that they're kind of an extra or a nice to have, which is not the case. You know, culture is intrinsic to society and life and, and a good society and a cohesive society. So it's this divisive um, attitude that is just really um, hard to understand. And I think it's interesting, certainly working in the cultural sector and when you talk with partners around the world, um, is an impression here that in the UK there is more of a culture of private sector support for these sorts of activities. But that has been a cultural shift that's happened over recent decades. So going back 20 years, the public sector played a bigger role in supporting organisations. Now, the public sector will only give money to cultural organisations which are already making significant money from the private sector. Uh, What has been the impact of that shift on cultural production itself, especially when it comes to like built environment and architecture as a culture, that everything has to be sponsored by the private sector in the end? I mean, I'm not sure that everything has to be sponsored by the public se- private sector in the end, but it is true that core government funding for arts has reduced. On the other hand, there are a lot of big institutions that used to charge money to visit. So if you think about the big um, exhibition uh, exhibition centres and galleries, I'm thinking in West London, you used to have to pay for those when I was a child. And actually, a lot of those institutions are free now. And you can just wander in and out, which also changes the way that you appreciate them, because you don't have the expectation that you have to extract some value from them. You can just bob in and out of them, which is a really nice thing to be able to do. 
So I don't know. I guess until the government takes it seriously that we need arts and that they are a part of society, they're not an extra and nice to have, we're going to see the less availability of arts and culture and sure put money into the other regions you know it is right that regions outside of london get funding but it doesn't have to be a false choice it doesn't have to be one over the other it could be both and i guess uh, probably something familiar to a lot of our listeners is if these organizations are then so strapped for cash does then that have an impact on the salaries of people working in the cultural sector does that then make it a kind of career route which because it is badly paid sometimes is increasingly more exclusive that this become these activities become something you know for the more elite and privileged people and there's less and less opportunities for people from more representative diverse backgrounds to to work in 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 these big museums or small museums even yeah i think that's true i mean we have already seen strikes from workers or or pay disputes from workers in arts institutions and so on and it is true that you see you see or hear of less kind of young people doing arts degrees or courses at community college and then going on to make a degree of that or make a living of that rather and so perhaps it will become more exclusive it will become something that you can only engage in if you have that financial support from familial wealth or whatever so that is a danger i do think that is the case you think about the 80s there was a you know there's a period of decline in in the country in the capital especially but there was a lot of creative production um, because there was availability of grants and courses and so on and without that availability you do wonder how inclusive the art sector will be going forward it's yeah. a worry now, it's a bit of a Groundhog Day thing because obviously cast our minds back to 2010 following the financial crisis. There was a whole load of cuts, yeah? Um, somewhat similar. Um, what were the cuts to cultural and community budgets like back then? What was the kind of impact of it back then? Um, is it going to be exactly the same right now or will it be different? Will it? Could it potentially be more significant because it's cuts upon cuts? Or have we become more resilient today compared to where we were in um, 12 years ago? Will it be worse? I think it possibly will be worse. I mean, beyond the arts, you know, in the decade 2010 to 2020, local authorities lost 63p in the pound uh, of government core funding, which is a huge reduction, and without any commensurate reduction in uh, the requirement to provide services. And in that same period, we saw a real terms cut in funding to the NHS. 2010 was also the year that education funding peaked and then has fallen ever since. Things like CABE, the Commission for the Architecture and Built Environment, which had done a lot of good for... um, for, for, for the built environment was merged into the design council. So 10 to 12 years later, you know, how's it going, basically? Uh, not brilliantly. You know, infrastructure is creaking. Um, availability of arts, which we talked about, is, is reducing. Um, you know, we have increasing inequality that's higher than other developed nations. And people can feel the consequences of that. Now, these cuts which have come from the Arts Council just now, they they've come about a week or so before what's expected to be a significant amount of cuts being announced by the government itself. These are likely to target capital projects we're hearing. Can you think of, will this have a particular impact on construction and the architects operating in London? Because we know that most of the architecture industry in the UK is based in London. It brings a great vitality to this city. A lot of the work they do is around the country, it's around the world. Um, There's probably more architects employed in London right now than at any time in history, in part because of the sort of property boom that happened following the Olympics in this city. If we're going to witness significant government cuts, if we're going to witness 
a recession here, a global recession. What what could happen next? What what could the, this world look like in January? Well, potentially, it makes things even more London centric. Things about like the the Northern Powerhouse, Northern Powerhouse Rail. What we discovered after lockdown is that we can do our work away from a workplace. We can do it from home. So potentially people could make good lives outside of the capital. Architects don't have to be in the city. That's what a lot of people have discovered. But with connectivity so poor, it means that they can't again. So if the government is serious about levelling up, they really shot themselves in the foot there because they're inevitably concentrating all the wealth back down in London. But I mean, I don't really have a problem with there being a centre for culture and art and architecture in London. I think it makes sense that you have concentrations of these places, and you, but you should still be able to move out into other regions as well easily. You should be able to do both. World leaders met in Cairo for the COP27 climate summit this week in an attempt to keep the 1.5 degrees C target to minimise global warming on track. Uh, this all received extensive coverage across the media. With rail transport offering the lowest emissions per kilometre and unit transported, one might think efficient and functioning railways would be taking centre stage right now. However, in the UK, a series of strikes led by the RMT union affecting rail and underground have brought attention to the many challenges facing those who work in the sector following decades of privatisation, pay freezes and underinvestment. It's an issue which has been impacting many people, especially London commuters, uh, with unions typically described as an obstacle to progress. However, in an attempt to set the record straight, the comedian and satirist Rory Bremner shared the following tweet by rail workers, which has been liked and retweeted more than 75,000 times. I'm going to read it. Three years ago, we accepted a 0% pay rise. Two years ago, we accepted a 0% pay rise. But this year, they came to us with a 0% pay rise plus over 2,500 redundancies, changes to terms and conditions. An increase from 28 weeks of nights to 39 weeks of nights. An increase from 32 weekends worked to 39 weekends worked. Currently, for a night shift, we get time and a quarter. For a weekend, uh, we get time and a half. They wish to cut both of these to time and a tenth. So that's a 15% pay cut on every night shift and a 40% pay cut on every weekend. But they want us to work more of them. This is the modernization they talk about, not technology. We embrace technology and have seen more and more of it in recent years. They also wish to fire and rehire the operative grades and bring them back on a new job title, but on £9,000 a year less. They also want them to use their own vehicles to get to work sites. Uh, All this when fuel is at its highest. They will also be pulled when currently they are part of the team. The press are painting this to be about pay above all else. It is not. But now we've said, sod them. We are going to demand better. I wish everyone could see past the government-controlled media smear. So that's the tweet that Roy Bremner rebroadcast, 75,000 likes and retweets. Um, So Albert, what's this all about? Uh, Why are these rail strikes so revealing about the current state of UK industrial relations? Well, that tweet really sets out what the issue is about and the extent to which uh, the workers expected to take a real terms pay cut. So look, previously, Network Rail had said discussions were closed. um, And then the reason the planned strikes this week have been called off is because those 
those talks are now open. So clearly the strikes are having a desired outcome, which is that they, delete, they lead to discussion and negotiation that tries to address this will terms pay cut. But of course, it's not just about the railway workers. So the cost of living is affecting everyone, and in particular, you know, public sector workers. So uh, nurses have announced that they're going on strike, which is their first ever national strike. Um, university staff are set to go on strike. Rural male workers are intending to strike, and we've had the barristers go on strike. So there is about to be a wave of industrial action. And of course, that other period of sustained strike action in the 70s was also during a period of high inflation. But I think also it's important to say that the public sentiment is, it seems to me, kind of largely on the side of people who are taking action, because everyone, more or less, is experiencing the the impact of the cost of living crisis in one way or another, or is at least like one degree away from someone who is impacted by it in a very tangible and clear way, in a clear way, as in the way it's been set out in the tweet that you read out. So I think this disruption is sort of accepted, is kind of priced in for the kind of chaos that's about to hit us over the next couple of months. Obviously, this week, uh, we've seen an enormous amount of coverage about the COP27 uh, meeting. And we're thinking about this you know, rail surely is you know the solutions we need you know for a carbon neutral industrialized society we need more rapid mass transit public systems like this um you've got the politicians going out there taking to the podium saying how committed they are to this and yet back at home um a situation is being allowed to perpetuate which potentially would could see fewer people using trains you know could see people getting in their cars could see carbon emissions going up yeah why what is the significance of this this kind of disconnect between what's being said and the reality uh, on the ground yeah i mean improved rail travel certainly is one way of addressing climate disaster you know is it significant that the strikes are happening at the same time as cop Um, Not really. I mean, they're happening at the same time as a climate breakdown, which is a real point and kind of speaks to the interconnectedness of the environment and the economy. But as far as COP itself goes, I mean, I'm kind of with Greta. I sort of question the efficacy. The shortlisted teams have been named in the international contest to master plan a 704-hectare garden city-style development providing 9,000 new homes on the edge of Colchester in Essex. Uh, This story was covered by the AJ Online, which ran an image gallery showing initial visuals by all the bidders. The five finalist teams feature a mix of established names in the world of architecture, such as Grimshaw, Lifshitz, Davison Sanderlands, Mikhail Richards, Howard Tompkins and Farrells. Uh, They're collaborating with emerging talents including Office S&M, Jazz Balla, Grounded Practice, and Boladay Design Studio. The Tendring and Colchester Borders Garden community is expected to deliver 9,000 new homes over the next 20 years, uh, as well as employment space, a new country park, university buildings, a rapid transport system, and retail, leisure, and community facilities. The contest was organised by Colander for Clarion Housing Group's development arm, they're called Latimer, and the aim of the competition was to find an exemplary master planning team to deliver a, quote, sustainable and inclusive vision for the site, which is on the eastern fringe of Colchester. The proposed new town will be built on the Colchester and Tendering borders, and it will have its own rapid transport system. Uh, Roughly half of the development will be dedicated to open green space. Um, It's expected to take about two decades to deliver with the first service plots set to be sold to house builders from 2025 onwards. The overall winner is expected to be announced in January and they'll submit an outline planning application in 2024. What's this all about? What do you think of the architect teams being lined up to establish this sustainable and inclusive vision uh, for a whole new town in Essex? 
Yeah, I mean, it's an exciting mix of names for sure. It's uh, lots of big names, some names that you might expect to see on there, a lot of smaller names, emerging ones that, um, you know, you might not expect to see on there, but it deserves the chance to work on that bigger scale. So that's really exciting. I think what's really interesting is there's obviously a lot of work that's gone on behind the scenes, putting together a brief and a procurement process that has meant these design-led teams have been encouraged and have come forward. I mean, they had something like 30 submissions. That's brilliant, you know. So they obviously, the tendering whoever they are, uh, District Council, Essex, so on, did a lot of work pulling that together. So um, I think that's worth recognising too. And that's it. If we think about it, the whole New Towns movement in post-war era in Britain, architecturally, a piece of architectural history, you can be quite romantic about it. I mean, there was, there was some pretty decent architecture. And once it really got going at its kind of apogee, you had Milton Keynes, which is like an extraordinary, distinct and cohesive place and also a remarkably successful city. And then we had a bit of a break. Uh, there haven't really been that many new towns built, even though uh, we've had enormous population growth in recent decades, which was anticipated. And we definitely needed new towns. We had initiatives like eco cities and, and garden cities and, and so on, but we haven't really had many built. Uh, what do you think of this idea of, of, of getting something like this going in Essex uh, with gusto uh, in the present era? Do we need more places like this in the kind of orbit of London? And would, do you think they sound like nice places to live? Um, well, I think we do need these places. We do need to build in higher densities outside of London and perhaps even more so in places where there's availability of land. Um, so I think it's interesting. I'm not unquestioning of the garden city model, though, you know, the sort of separation of uses in Ebenezer Howard's original kind of garden city vision. That has resulted in a huge reliance on cars and sort of these garden, suburb, Newtown type places being more suburb than London. You know, they were supposed to be kind of a mix of both. But actually, I think they're going to have to map on to more of the London idea of a mix of uses because that's a much more sustainable approach. And in terms of, you know, energy efficiency and efficiency of uses, I think you can't have that same separation of uses that you might have had in the original garden cities. Does it sound like a good place to live? I mean, I get vertigo like leaving the M25, so I'm probably not not the right person to ask. But I think, you know, it's a 20-year project, um, so it's going to take a long time to answer, will it be good? And the application for 2024 is just for outline. So the real question is, how are the design principles going to be embedded in that so that there is stewardship for quality that is embedded and retained as those plots come forward by those individual home builders? You know, that's the real question, I think. You know, the work that's going to be done in to, to set a template for really high quality design in that initial outline application. There are various attempts to build thousands and thousands of new homes. Lots of local authorities are doing this in different places. Some in London are more ambitious than others. Um, what, what do they look like in comparison to what's going on in Colchester? Because is the only solution like satellites like this all the way around the outside? Or can really exciting stuff also happen in London that is genuinely affordable, that does provide a real opportunity for the city to grow in a sustainable, meaningful way uh, for everyone? Yeah, I mean, the Essex Newtown project is 9,000 homes. So Meridian Waters, 10,000 homes in Enfield. Uh, also 20, 20 years of regeneration project. Barking Riverside, I think also is 10,000 new homes. So these are huge developments on what were previously kind of fringes of the city uh, that are kind of redefining uh, the edges of London and redefining what were previously kind of semi-suburban parts of the city into much higher density uh, places, 
higher density and also height, you know, that's the main thing. I think a lot of those two that I've mentioned, they will have substantial height, which is not something that you would necessarily have expected in those parts of London. But that is part of how we are going to achieve density and with that density, affordable homes. So it kind of has to happen. And is that what you're working on at Waltham Forest or is are you more infills? And... Well, Waltham Forest is a very small borough, so we don't have a huge availability of surplus land. So it is a lot of intensification. There are areas that we are going higher. So Blackhorse Lane is an area of height. Um, Lee Bridge, there are some areas of height as well. Um, because, as I say, the density has to go somewhere. And in order to deliver our targets of 50% affordable, um, you know, we, we have to have the numbers to make that stack up. But we're doing pretty good on achieving our 50% affordable and delivering our housing targets as well. A right-leaning campaign group promising to rescue the National Trust from, quote, political takeover, saw all of its candidates for council seats rejected at the Trust's annual general meeting and is now criticising the charity's voting system. This story was covered by The Guardian. Dubbed Restore Trust, the campaign group put forward seven candidates amid complaints in some media about how the 5.4 million member charity has been addressing historical links to the slave trade and its approach to gay and transgender rights. Resolutions put forward by Restore Trust against National Trust participation in Pride events, which the campaign group described as divisive and an unaccountable waste of members' subscriptions, um, and also against the quote, fad described by the campaign group of rewilding were also not carried in the vote. Founded by social reformer Octavia Hill in 1895, the National Trust is a major player in UK built environment heritage, owning almost 250,000 hectares of land and 780 miles of coast. Its properties include more than 500 historic houses, castles, archaeological and industrial monuments, along with gardens, parks and nature reserves. Unsuccessful candidates put forward by the campaign group included Philip Gibbs, a fund manager and Conservative Party donor, who said the trust should be less political. Bola Anike, a Brighton-based campaigner who said it was a mistake to present the past through the prism of race. And Jeremy Black, a former Exeter University professor, who said the charity's judgmental presentation of some properties had caused, quote, unnecessary controversy. So, Alpen, what's this all about? Why is this apparent battle over the National Trust ruling council so important to anyone with an interest in built environment heritage? Yeah, so restore trusts were not successful and you kind of have to stop yourself from going, ha ha, because um, I don't really understand what their point is. I suppose it just reminds us that history or heritage, as it's conveyed, is more than just stuff that happened in the past you know it's it's who gets to tell it and how they get to tell it and you know uh we are or some of us acknowledge that our understanding of the origins and flows of wealth and power uh, particularly in relation to the british empire is really limited and what the national trust have started doing uh, is to better and more fully kind of contextualize the symbols of wealth and power that they have stewardship of you know to provide a kind of fuller or richer picture or a more complex story and you know why that is controversial i i don't know i don't understand yeah it's certainly interesting that in that some of these campaigns are historians and obviously history as a discipline involves debate you know that's the whole point um you know, the, you know, they call it historiography the history of history and how history changes in regards to our current predicament um i guess the, the difference here is that rather than happening in the ivory towers of universities it's happening in the public sphere a debate about history no one ever thinks history stops, you know, our understanding of history stops. If that was true, we wouldn't 
you wouldn't have archaeologists digging stuff up because they would say, well, it's done. We're not going to, we don't want to learn anything more. But we do want to learn more. And what is going on here is one group of people saying, if we learn more, it detracts from our history, which is such a bananas like way of looking at things. I just can't understand it. You know, it's like saying, oh, Richard III, well, we think he was there. We actually, we think he might have been buried under this car park, but we're not going to find out because that changes what we knew. So we don't want to do that. I mean, it's just really weird. It's weird. I mean, there certainly has been a flurry of reinterpretation in recent years. Okay, certainly following the death of George Floyd, following the Black Lives Matter movement, 2020 and the pandemic, a lot of there was like a really intense thinking and effort to, to, to move things forward, to do right by past wrongs. Now, Restore Trust say what they're doing is they're trying to save the National Trust from becoming politicised. What are they referring to there? Do they have a point? I mean, what do they mean? I, I don't know if I know. I think you'd have to ask them, and I'm not sure that you'd get a really coherent answer. I mean, you said the word it's something like reappraising or, or re- being reconsidered. I would say actually those stories just weren't fully told in the first instance so it's just giving a more complete picture about where some of the wealth and power comes from or the origins of that wealth and power so i don't think it's that it's a reinterpretation i just think there's a fuller fuller picture that's being highlighted and 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 some of this stems from the idea that you know facts are only opinions and unsavory facts are kind of deliberately disparaging and that's not the case there's an expression that where culture goes, politics follows. And it, it could be that we're witnessing uh, a cultural battle that has been won and that the, polit- the political victors are a bit behind where broader culture is moving as a society. Yeah, or the two things are in opposition. Actually, because society is becoming more open and more culturally accepting, there's a kind of reaction to that, which which is the opposite. But nothing is apolitical. So I'm definitely not saying that arts and culture are not political. I think every act is political. I mean, you know, actually riding a bike instead of driving, you know, is political, uh, but not in the aggressive way that people understand it to be I just mean that the way we choose to live our lives can be political and that's not necessarily a scary or threatening thing that can be a positive thing fantastic we're on to the culture section okay so we're going to look at what's on the radar things that are coming up in London one thing that caught my eye particularly because it actually relates to your locality is the Walthamstow beer mile so this has been reported in the AJ. It's a £600,000 project to improve the Lockwood Way Industrial Estate uh, in Black Horse Lane. That's obviously within the London Borough of Waltham Forest. This estate is home to the Wildcard Brewery. Uh, if you ever come to any Open City events, we often uh, have Wildcard drinks because they're very nice. Also, the Hackney Brewery is based there. Uh, they both have on-site tap rooms and host outdoor markets on the estate at the weekend. So this is sounding like a, a cultural destination uh, for any beer fans listening. Have you, have you had a chance to check this one out i haven't had a chance to check it out but obviously it gets a big thumbs up for me because it is in the london borough of waltham forest so it's undoubtedly great um i mentioned earlier that black horse lane is an area of growth so there is there there are going to be new homes there's going to be more industrial uh space as well or improved industrial space so this also speaks to the fact that there's you know investment going into culture and arts as well as just residential it's not you know the idea is not to make this a homogenous neighborhood but to recognize that there are things that are going on there already that don't need to be cleared away that can be amplified and invested in that will improve the sense of place there 
Fantastic. Another major cultural moment this week was that Peter Barber won the Sewn Medal. So it's the architect Peter Barber, you've probably heard him mention many times on the show before if you're a regular listener, has been awarded the 2022 Sewn Medal for his inventive approach to designing high quality and affordable social housing. Um, Barber's the fifth recipient of the award, uh, which is bestowed annually by Sir John Soane's Museum in memory of the Regency era architect. So finally, okay, this is one for everybody's diaries. Tuesday, 13th of December is the London Christmas Review of the Year. You going to be there? Yeah, if I'm invited. <laughs> so tickets are free and tickets are available on the website. So if you, you go there, you can register and claim your free ticket. I will and certainly be there. It's going to happen here, Design District in North Greenwich in Salon, which is a really cool room, uh, interior designed by Ros Barr Architects. It's going to be a Christmas review of the year, a bit like the comedy quiz we did a year ago, reviewing the big stories with panellists, sharing their insight and wit uh, into all the things things that happened over the last 12 months. It's going to be chaired by our director, Phineas Harper, and we'll be taking a humorous look at big political and architecture stories with an amazing lineup of special guests. It looks really cool. And having been in the salon, which is a very cool space, I think it's going to be a really good evening. Thank you for being on the show this week, Alper. It's been an immense pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. And where can our listeners go to keep up to speed on the work you're doing? Is there a website or social media handles they should follow? I do have a website, which is alpadapani.com. And I also am on Twitter as well under my name, Alpadapani. Fantastic. Thanks for being on the show. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BolinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.